is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. When I'm not working on the podcast, I'm working on my fiber art and illustration brand, Close Call Studio. So if you want to follow along with my own journey, you can check me out on Instagram at Close Call Studio or check out my website at CloseCallStudio.com. It's Nicole here, your other Beyond the Studio co-host. I'm a painter, muralist, and installation artist. If you want to see more of my work and studio process, you can find me on Instagram at Nicole Marie Muller or my website, which is Nicole Marie Muller. That's M-U-E-L-L-E-R.com. Hey folks, it's Amanda here from Beyond the Studio. Yet again, we're doing a two-part episode because our conversation with Renu this week was so good, it ended up being a long conversation. And rather than give you a like hour and a half to two hour long episode or severely cut chunks of the conversation, we decided to just break it up into two parts. This week on Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition, we are talking with Bay Area artist Ranu Mukherjee, best known for her hybrid films, uh, but whose work spans drawing, painting, uh, video, animation, and choreography. Uh, so a very multidisciplinary artist who we're really excited to talk to today. Ranu, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely. Would you be able to give us a little bit of a summary of your creative background in your own words? Uh, sure. You mean like my history or where I came from? I guess we could start by like describing your work a little bit for listeners that are not familiar and walking us through your creative journey thus far, whether that includes uh, education or living in different areas, different jobs within arts, whatever. Yeah, okay. Well, so like you said, I work a kind of across media from painting to what I call hybrid film to which kind of combines different sorts of mediums to become something like animation. A lot of sort of large scale installation recently. My artistic journey has been kind of happened in two parts. So I went to Mass Art in Boston for my undergraduate and went to and studied painting and then started making films in my final year. So I was making paintings and films. And I feel like a lot of the work that I make now comes out of bringing those two disciplines together in a way that you couldn't before digital technology made it possible to do that. So that's one big thing. And the dialogues that happened in film that were around, you know, kind of post-colonial conversations and 
ethnography and sort of the problematic nature of the ethnographic gaze, I think had a lot, a lot of influence on me as an undergrad. But I went to London to do my graduate work at the Royal College of Art. And after that, I actually spent uh, 11 years in London and my practice was primarily working as part of the collective Orphan Drift, which is like, it's a media collective as Avatar. So we were an avatar that worked kind of making the work of this avatar, even though there were more than one of us, if you know what I mean. So rather than saying we were a collective, it wasn't like our collective shows showed different people's production. We actually made individual work, and that work was really focused around, you know, the incoming technology. So it was a moment kind of like now where technology was really changing the world and changing communications and the way we thought about images. And so our work was all focused on like the first wave of that. And so I started that way in terms of my public career. And then in the early 2000s, around 2003, I moved to the Bay Area and we were still kind of doing a lot of collaborations and stuff for a couple of years, but I realized I had to also kind of shift. And I made a really, it was a kind of big transition moment in my life where I wasn't sure because our work was really focused between contexts. We were working in the art world in lots of nonprofit and performance spaces, some museum work, uh, some gallery work. We also worked in the context of conferences around continental philosophy. We worked in the music scene quite a bit, in the electronica scene. And we also did some sort of industrial editing work. And so I kind of came into San Francisco, not knowing what I was going to do. I'd sort of, I've been teaching also for a long time. And then I kind of took a break from that and wasn't sure like what I was doing, if I was going to be an artist still, like all of this, I had to kind of also become more acclimatized to working individually. And I went through this whole thing and then decided in the end that I needed to just like really recommit myself to art because that was what I really wanted to do. So it was just to say, because I've listened to your broadcast before, that those sorts of things seem like an important part of the way you talk about people's journeys. And I did have a moment of like really questioning and trying to give up in a way, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that yeah. didn't really work. But what happened at the end was I just kind of became more committed to it in a way that really ended up working for me. And then also during that time, I ended up having kids. So I had triplets in 2006 and they're 12 now. And so that was a really big, so that whole period was kind of. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people can't. But that whole period was a big transition. And I now I make work predominantly as a solo artist. And that was a whole kind of thing. And the work that I'm making now is sort of different, but I've also got a show up right now that's that collective, which, so I'm still working in that mode with one of the collaborators. And um, I think because in this moment, these same questions that we were dealing with then are coming up again, our work from that time is being shown again. And so I have this sort of two-pronged, artistic journey that's beginning to sort of make sense together in a way now. And how did you initially get connected with that group? Were these peers from your graduate program or other artists that you had met? Yeah, they were. Well, one of them, one of them I was at graduate school with and the other two were um, well, we always say it was four and a half people because we actually collaborated with a lot of different people, but there were four of us that were sort of core people. So one of them that I still collaborate today with today was in my graduate program and the other two were 
actually students at different schools where we both taught at various times and became friends with. But it happened very organically in a way. And we were also, it was like during the Young British Art Movement was really in full swing. And there was a lot of celebrity around art. And when I think back to it now, I feel like we were also, I don't know, kind of walking against the grain in that way, um, trying to find another mm -hmm. model for, for art and collective understanding of image making. Yeah. So that was sort of the beginning. And then I came here and then I sort of transitioned into making the work that I make now. And sort of that's been a period of a bunch of years now. So that's like the second half of my public person as artist who you know, who is the one yeah. that you know, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if it'd be interesting to dig into each of these chapters a little bit. And we're, we're always interested to hear about what those first couple of years right after school looked like, mm -hmm. because they tend to be so informative uh, towards your later career journey. And so what else did your life look like at that point? Were you starting to teach right after graduate school? Or were you really finding more professional opportunities through Orphan Drift? Or were you starting to work other jobs alongside this while you're starting to build your career as an artist, just kind of supporting yourself first out of school? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, okay, so I was in London. I was doing all of the above. I did get a day a week teaching at Goldsmiths through one of my graduate school professors, and that, and that happened kind of right away. So that was pretty amazing because the program, the undergraduate program there is really like an open-ended, non-medium-specific program and it was really like a graduate school itself so it was a way of continuing conversations and that was kind of an amazing experience I didn't really set out to teach at all but that just kind of happened and I was also working in this private members club for Oberon Waugh's grandson ran this magazine called the literary review and they had this like little members club in the basement and so I worked there and yeah that was basically what I did and then I did a bunch of visiting artist gigs at different schools as well you know, and then I lived in this big group house with one of my collaborators and a bunch of other artists, all of whom I still know. And it was a really definitely a very formative moment. And at that time in London, it was kind of amazing because there was so much artist run culture there that, you know, you could do a show in your house and get a review. <laughs> Like, I can't mm -hmm. believe, oh you know, it was like, I, I don't know, it just seems like another world now, but it was really, it was just a very generative time in London, the 90s. And so, you know, we did a lot of, we showed, we'd had a lot of shows and we're, we were always kind of involved in what was going on and I'm always there. I mean, in the in lots of different versions of art world there. We didn't make any money, really. We got some grants. So um, we got some grants. We were super, super impractical. We were also really bad at documenting stuff. So now we're dealing with the fallout of like having little documentation for some of the more performance-oriented work. Some of the work was like kind of ephemeral or it would be remixed every time we showed it. So it was kind of like, it had that ephemeral edge to it. So yeah, we were basically like really, really active, but also it wasn't our income necessarily. Mm -hmm. 
And so the teaching and then these visiting artist um, invitations that started to come about were more of what was sustaining you during that period? Yeah, teaching, working in the, the Literary Review Members Club, making making soup and serving drinks, which is a pretty interesting cultural experience, I have to say. <laughs> and also not being in debt. So I do teach students still, and it really shocked, like the amount of debt people go into now really is shocking to me because I never went into debt. I, I like went to mass. Mm. Massachusetts College of Art for undergrad was $600 a semester then. And then I went to London and I paid. Yeah, I know it's not anymore. Yeah, it's hard to imagine now. Just add a couple zeros. Yeah, exactly. It was super different. And then I went to graduate school. It was actually less expensive to go to the Royal College as an international student than it would have been to be stay in the States. But I also got a scholarship for one-year tuition. So I only had to pay one year of tuition. So, I mean, it was really like I just was able to do that. And that was sort of great and not great because I was able to just sort of coast along and um, be broke, but I wasn't... I I don't think I got, like, truly responsible (laughs) about the the problem of kind of trying to make a living for for a long time. And it wasn't with that, it wasn't part of that project, really. Like, we just had no commercial either desire or focus or maybe realism or something. I don't Mm -hmm. know, you know. So, I mean, I didn't really get, get into that part of things until much later. I think that's so common, though, because... I think it's easy for artists to get very wrapped up in the idea of like, I am here to make the work. It is all about the work. Yeah. And you kind of forget like, I mean, it's easy to think that way when you're young because all the hard stuff just seems so far away from you. And the older you get, the more you really, I mean, I say that now, like I'm still very young, but as you get older, you're realizing like, yeah, I'd like to be able to have a stable life for myself at some point. Yeah. I wish I had started thinking about that a little sooner. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, we were also doing like tons of skills sharing and equipment sharing. So part of the thing that we were doing was working. I mean, the collective was really supportive in a certain way because we were sharing all of our resources. So there was that. But I just think because of not being in debt, it was like a matter of building a career in other ways, but we weren't very focused on what. So, I mean, I'm really thankful for having been like such a DIY artist for so long. And I think that experience is still really important to me. But I'm also learned some of the r- realism stuff like later. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're you're a mom to triplets. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a- about as real as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. <laughs> God, I mean, three babies at the same time. <laughs> I I can't even imagine one, but three. That yeah, oh, you're you're superwoman. <laughs> I mean, all women yeah. are superwomen, but you're super, super, superwoman. <laughs> well, I w- I read a lot of science fiction, and that was a good preparation for having triplets. <laughs> <laughs> For being pregnant with triplets and have, and then and having them. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. When do you think you really started to shift into thinking about your art career in a more professional mindset, thinking like how am I supposed to make a life for myself? Like shifting into out of just DIY and more into Yeah, I mean I'll say I we I don't think it was that we didn't think about that. 
I think it was that we were more focused on like trying to put these radical models out into the world. And that was the career path for Orphan Drift mm-hmm. and probably still is to some extent. Um, but also these conversations about what was going to happen with technology. So, I mean, we did. it's not like we didn't think about career. I mean, we were definitely doing things professionally, like quite a lot mm-hmm. of things. But I think when I came back and went through this sort of period where I was like maybe trying to give up being an artist and then realized actually I didn't want to be in another world like I was thinking about doing something like maybe film editing or animation or something like that and then when I realized what that actually meant and did a bunch of freelance work and realized like this is actually not going to sustain me personally. And then I start and I started to reach out about teaching again, like thinking, well, actually teaching is kind of a great job for artists because like you're in dialogue with artists all the time. And, um, you know, I, I kind of got back to the core and decided I just needed to really commit to it and do it better and, and kind of work towards something you know work towards another form of career I guess so that definitely was like a big start to that phase yeah and then when my kids came I mean I also had these kind of weird thoughts about like oh maybe I'll have kids and won't need to make art anymore you know so during that whole transition I had that thought and it kind of went completely in the other direction because I really thought well if I don't make work my kids will never know who I am and that's just terrible and I'll also Mm. be I'm I mean I realize now like I'm not the kind of person who um, not that I really had a choice not to have work anywhere and I always think that's funny when people think they're making a choice to be a stay-at-home mom or not. I'm like, well, most of us don't really have a choice. Like, you have to work. You need an income. Mm-hmm. But I really, um, it really made me realize how much also I needed to make work and I needed to be myself for me, but also for them in a way, you know. So during all that time, like, I remember kind of just being like, okay, I have to, I mean, I made work when they were little, but it was very few and far, but it was like, I was, you know, I was transitioning into this solo practice at the same time as doing all of that, like transitioning into being a parent. And so that was a kind of, in a way, a good timing because I was like working really slowly and doing experiments and research and kind of developing a language. But I think when they were about, hmm, maybe a year and a half, I started to really like think about getting a studio outside of the house and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got the Kalaw Fellowship, which was like a, the first time I'd had a studio outside of the house. Okay. When you talk about making this decision to recommit to art and then approaching your your practice in a different way, um, were there other things that you were also doing in terms of just approaching your professional career or were you really giving yourself the time and space after making that move and then after having kids to just focus on the creative practice to see where your work was headed or were you also starting to, I don't know, more aggressively seek out other opportunities either to show your work or um, like did that coincide with um, other things happening for you or was it really just about the work and then starting a family? Well the first thing I, th- I think the first thing was like making a transition between being a collective avatar to being a, mm-hmm. an individual artist was like a pretty big shift. I mean I'd, I'd made a lot of work 
myself before we were working collectively, but it was a pretty long chunk of time where my primary practice was in dialogue with these other people. And so making that transition involved actually defining what I make, what I need to make as a person, as an individual. Like what are the what are my own needs as an artist? What sustains me? What kind of work is it that I make that maybe I couldn't do in that context? I went back to like really just thinking about what picture making is to me and the fact that I am a picture maker and that like moving between moving image and painting is the sort of place where that happens for me. And so the first thing I did was to try to figure out the language of the work because I knew that I couldn't really do anything professionally until that was happening. But I did, Mm -hmm. like I applied for the Collar Fellowship, which was like, that was one of the first things that I did. I started to, I also started to teach again, which was not just about teaching. It was about meeting artists in San Francisco because like I, Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area, because when I came, most of the people I knew here were in the music scene. And so like, I didn't really know a lot of visual artists. Um, I had a couple of connections at CCA, which helped me like connect with people there and get work, some work to begin with. But then I started to sort of meet people and then opportunities came through that also. That was kind of a way in. And then getting a studio was definitely part of that whole thing. So there were definitely some things that had to do with moving on professionally. Um, You know, the Kalaw Fellowship is great as an emerging thing because it comes with a an exhibition and a budget and all of that stuff. So that sort of started me out on this path that towards the way that things seem to be happening now, which is that like I move between doing like commission projects and gallery exhibitions. And both of those are supportive in different ways. Like, you know, you get commission money for the projects, but, and then I sell work through a gallery. So I think, um, I think I started to think about working, like I, when I started making pictures again, I started to think, oh, actually maybe it's time for me to think about working commercially or working with a gallery because I was making things that could be defined as an object more, even if they were video. Whereas with the collective, a lot of our work was very iterative and performance based. I mean, there was a lot of videos and things, but, but somehow it never rested in an object, if you know what I mean. So the platform wasn't as conducive to that kind of thinking. But once I started mm-hmm. making work by myself again, it sort of feel, it felt like, the, like a, a direction that I could go in. And so how long have you been teaching at CCA now? And can you talk about some of the opportunities that have come about through being a part of that community? Sure. I mean, um, I started there in, in 2004, just doing, I was actually what's called a wild card. So I came in being the person that nobody knew on critiques and stuff. But then I started getting classes okay. when people were in sabbatical. And I guess the opportunities I would say are just really, like I said, about social, like getting to know artists in the Bay Area has been the biggest one, whether they're faculty, mm-hmm. alumni, or students. And having dialogue with people, which I think is like, I mean, it might not seem directly career based, but I think that the art world is so social. Maybe, maybe because I spent so long in a collaborative situation, you know, maybe because I was here without my collaborators, it like replaced some of that dialogue, you know, um, having dialogues with students or other faculty. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, um, 
what's happened since I've been here is that I've become much more kind of centered in the contemporary art world in a way that our collect, I think our collective at the time, I mean, we're now also there, but at the time in the 90s, we were much more in these kind of alternative spaces between art, music, and philosophy. And, and so what's happened in the last, I guess, decade or so is that I've become more, you know, sort of, I've, I've sort of pared down because I think I realized at some point, like, spanning all of those worlds doesn't necessarily work that well because you're spread, you get spread thin and the, they're really different professional contexts to move in. And so I've kind of become more focused on, like, one context, even though I do a lot of different things and work in different kinds of institutions and spaces and and public spaces and things, it's still like within the realm of what we call contemporary art. So I've learned a lot more about how to, how to navigate that field, I guess. That's not, oh, that's sort of skipping over the question about CCA. But I think, I think I answered that question about the sort of social, social things and um, just opportunities to connect and have conversations. Yeah, and I think you point out something that seems to be true for a lot of artists as well, which is just that these things are somewhat cumulative and happen organically uh, over time uh, as a result of the kinds of connections and and community that you're building Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. amongst artists. Yeah. So yeah, it's just interesting to hear that um, echoed in in different people's experiences too. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, because you mentioned starting to focus within the context of visual arts, but also having shown in a variety of spaces and you've worked with museum institutions as well as commercial galleries and just a little bit about your experience with that? How are you uh, navigating your work in these different contexts or how do you find the working relationship um, with these different groups? Um, Do you have a preference? Do you feel like they're very supportive of one another? Um, Like how would you say you're moving between working in these different types of spaces? Yeah, you know, I feel like super lucky in a way because I have, I feel like, um, well, I work with Gallery Wendy Norris, who is sort of based here. I mean, they're based here, but they've just moved recently to this nomadic kind of model where they're having exhibitions for their artists in different places. But I mean, I've been working with them for nine years and they're very, very supportive of Um, the projects their artists are doing with institutions. And so that's always, that's been, I feel like I've been really lucky to have the support of Wendy and the gallery in that way, because there's never been any weirdness around that stuff. I think that they're really smart in, you know, Mm -hmm. understanding how important those, those institutional shows are. What seems to have happened, and I don't, this just seems to be the rhythm that's happened for me, is that, Um, I've moved back and forth between like I'll do a couple of big commission projects which are which are different in the sense that they tend for me to end up being a little bit more site specific or context specific and so like I'm thinking about a really particular institution or exhibition series or something like that and the content of the work 
sometimes has some aspects that will respond to that. Will respond to a particular type of space. Like for instance, the last show I did at the De Young was really about being in this public atrium, and because it's mm -hmm. the only space in the museum that you don't have to pay entry fee to get in, I thought a lot about what public spaces mean and and, and are, and what public voices are, and organized a project around those kinds of ideas, um, which, but with, with a lot of other ideas that come from other parts of my, my work. But so those projects, I mean, I love working with those projects. I w I've done work with the Asian Art Museum, the San Jose Museum of Art. I've had really good experiences with all of the curators who work in different ways, but I've found it to be kind of amazing to get, you know, a budget and somebody saying, what do you want to do? And taking the responsibility to define that and and make it, and also there's always a component in those in those projects that are commissioned where I'm usually doing something I've never done before, mm -hmm. which is like a great. I mean, it's such a good opportunity to push things. Like this last show was a really big push in scale. The the other recent big commission I did was for the DeRosa up north, and it was like an opportunity to do a deeper collaboration with Hope More Dance, who I've been sort of slowly starting to build collaborative work with over time. And working with dancers is really exciting to me. So yeah, so those projects tend to kind of push me out of my comfort zones, like formally and materially, as well mm -hmm. as make me think about um, these kind of context-specific. Sometimes they have to do with place or site. Sometimes they have like historical investigation attached to them. Um, I did a project at the Asian Art Museum, which was all about the Chinese Exclusion Act and mining and the idea of the speculative, which was like a way of deepening my investigation to something I was really interested in for a long time. But also that project was really specifically chosen for the Asian Art Museum because it was their 50th anniversary and they were doing some work on a show that had to do with gold. And I wanted to kind of I guess problematize that or bring a sort of more complicated history into that to think about the gold rush from uh, a different migratory path to think about the history of gold in a different way. But it also made me realize that I didn't want to do a show about something that had to do with, for instance, Indian history, even though I've done work about gold and migration in India. I didn't want to do that at the Asian Art Museum because I felt this like, I felt like it would be really essentialist of me as a Indian American artist to do something like that at a museum like that. So I chose to do something that would also challenge assumptions about what certain artists could talk about, um, which feels like an important conversation right now. So, so those kinds of opportunities always lend themselves to me thinking in these ways about being a, an artist in a public space space in a museum space, which is kind of different than what happens when I'm doing a gallery show, which is like where, you know, I sort of let go of all of that in a certain way and, you know, produce these bodies of work that are where the work itself is the context. So it has to make it, it's a way of pushing my visual language in a way where it has to sort of perform its own content in a way that doesn't, can't depend on an institution in, a, in another way. Just because mm -hmm. I guess the gallery 
I wouldn't call it a neutral space at all, but I think that, that that's what happens to me when I'm doing gallery shows for some reason. And I think it's also because the way that the rhythm of production has happened to me is that I go from these museum projects to a gallery show and, and it, there's, there, there's this freedom that then starts happening, which is like, oh, there's no sort of contextual information to, to draw on in a certain sense, so I can just do whatever... I want or deepen right. deepen some of the things that started like what happened with the De Young show was that it was a short production cycle and so I felt like even though that was an absolutely massive project in scale that it was actually the beginning of a body of work for me and so now I'm continuing to do that body of work which will end up in a probably in a show that's more happening through the gallery. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I first saw your work in person, actually, um, in the Bay Area, was the De Young Museum. I'm curious. I have a couple questions within this. So okay. when a museum space approaches you um, for a project, is it typically attached to some kind of a program like the Asian Art Museum, or is it much more open-ended, like they're bringing you a budget and want to work with you in some capacity, but apart from that, the parameters are fairly open? Like, How would you describe that working relationship um, when they're commissioning you to do a, a site-specific project of some sort it's been you know so far it's been really open like even the asian art museum they just mentioned somebody mentioned there like oh we're doing this 50th anniversary thing and we're thinking about a contemporary component do you happen to have anything that has to do with gold and i was also okay here's an example of an example and an an opportunity that comes through teaching. I'd taken a class up to the Foresight Foundation's residency site, and it was a we did this. We were doing this whole investigation of mining culture, and thinking about sort of the history of mining, and then the new forms of excavation in terms of like the pot industry and all all the tech industry and things like that that are affecting this whole California in general. And so we were up there, and I sort of learned a lot of stuff about gold mining in the in the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was a history I didn't actually know. And so when I when somebody said that to me from the museum, I was like, I really want to do a project about this because it's something that I don't know about and I should know about. And so that project developed through my conversations with Mark Mayer, who is a curator there, and sort of proposing it to them and then they deciding that they would support it as a project. So that kind of happened. It was sort of an invitation. It was also sort of a proposal. The de Young was like completely open-ended. I just got a call from Claudia one day saying, can you take on the atrium? Because it's a really challenging space. And she told me a little bit about the show that she was curating, which is still up now, where she was rehanging the permanent collection. And she talked about her ideas called Spectres of Disruption. And she was talking about her ideas around that show and, and that that was why she'd invited me to do something. But that's all she said. So it was mm -hmm. really like, okay, this is the space you know, what do you want to do? And this is the time, and this is the time frame. So the time frame was kind of short for that. Um, and so it was kind of, it would, that was a really sort of the most challenging in, on, in this level of scale that has happened. I did a project with the San Jose Museum. Jody Th Throckmorton invited me to do that. And that was also really open-ended. It was for a series of projects called Beta Space, which was sort of bringing emerging artists into the museum to do new work. And so, you know, they kind of asked that you think about doing something that you hadn't done before. So that was the first time that I printed, I worked on imagery that was coming out 
out of my video work and printed it onto silk sari material. And that's like since become a really big part of what I do when I'm making static work. So yeah, those projects are really generative. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear what the starting point for those conversations is. And then are you creating a proposal for this is what you would love to do? And then they're helping to find ways to bring that to fruition or to find funding for it? Or are they typically giving you more fixed parameters? Like, here's our budget, you know, do what you can within this. Usually there's a budget. It's it's always different when the budget appears. Like and so it's been okay. it's been kind of different, like different types. Like with beta space, it's it was very clear. It was like this is the budget, this is the time frame, what would you like to do? And it was definitely like I always think of it as a way to further something I've already started in a way, or some type of investigation. That project, they definitely were interested in things that were like sort of engaging with the Silicon Valley or San Jose or something about the context there. And so there was there was a way that I felt like I should be thinking about that. That felt right to me too, because the work, my work has a lot to do with the idea of creolization and what makes a place a place in terms of patterns of migration. And so like that was the first kind of bigger project where I got to think about that in a site-specific way. Um, but yeah, that was a really fixed budget. I think with the Asian Art Museum, we were applying for um, a grant and the grant had a budget and we didn't get the grant, but that sort of formed the budget for the project. And that project was really interesting because it was supposed to be a regular show. And then one day <laughs> Mark called me in and said, um, I have some news, which is good and crazy, which is sort of good and bad, which is that the show needs to be either he said something like, we have to do this show. The show has to take eight months. It has to be an eight-month show, but we have to do it six months early. And I was like, well, I can't do that project. I can't do May in, you know, December or whatever it was. You know what I mean? So we devised this this idea of making a show as a trilogy, and it ended up being this amazing platform where I installed three times and made a, tril a film that was a trilogy, and the whole trilogy didn't appear until the end. So each part of the install, one more section went in. And so often with these projects, there's this kind of creative thing that happens in really dealing specifically with the context. But that one had a specific budget. And, and the de Young also, the budget was sort of fairly specific, but not totally fixed. I mean, we sort of taught, you know, I did, I, I proposed a project and a budget and then we, we and then we negotiated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's helpful to hear. I'm always curious um, and thinking too for artists who may not have had an opportunity like this, but let's say they're showing in some kind of museum setting for the first time, what that conversation is like, or if they should be expecting to, you know, have a set of criteria in terms of their, their own project budget or um, to sort of come prepared with that information or if it's more of a conversation or if it's typically the institution kind of setting the the standard for it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great to be really ambitious <laughs> and then, you know, like dial back and, and also to think 
really concretely about like what things actually cost because it's always pretty surprising how much things cost and then thinking about like making sure that you put in an artist fee that's reasonable for yourself because you know when you do projects like that you're completely that's your production for a period of time so for me like if I'm you know sometimes selling work and sometimes doing commissions if I'm doing a commissioned mm -hmm. project like I need to make sure that I'm actually making an income too because it can kind of yeah. halt other kinds of production for a certain period of time um, so that's an important thing to think about for sure I did you know my gallery has also been very helpful in the sense that they will look at budgets for me and I think it's really good to run budgets by somebody um, because it's really easy to underestimate or undercut yourself. And I think that's just, um, you know, it's a bit of a liability. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. Oh, and that was the other question I had too, was um, because you've been working with Gallery Wendy Norris for a while, as well as showing in these other spaces, if they're ever facilitating those opportunities or are these kind of completely independent of one another? They usually come about independently, um, so the gallery will support them. And then mm -hmm. sometimes, like I know that one, I did do a commission for the LA County Museum of Art that came about because the gallery had sent out some information, some sort of like a dossier on a, a bunch of work that I'd done. And it landed on the desk of somebody who'd seen my work in another show. And so that kind of double, that thing helped. Sure, yeah. Like the kind of reminder was like, oh, we have this series of video commissions. This would be a really good person to do that. So I think the mm -hmm. stuff that they, I mean, I do feel very, very supported by their efforts because they, you know, when I do a big project, you know, they will let people know about it and whether that comes back directly or it comes back in terms of like just having it be on somebody's desk in a different way is like, I'm, I'm sure that does something. Yeah. Yeah, part of the reason I asked, or I think, and I wish I could remember um, which artist in particular, but I'd seen Gallery Wendy Norris working with an artist that did a public project at SFO, uh -huh. I think. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Val Britton, maybe? Yes, that was Val it. Val Britton did one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was curious if that's something like they, like the artist and the gallery were kind of jointly applying for and then working through that process together, or if, you know, it would have been the artist independently applying and then once the project was secured, you know, having representation by Gallery Winnie Norris, they're helping to work through the process. Or just what your experience, if any, yeah. Had been with I mean, that. it works in really different ways. Like, I'm, mostly the artist is doing the proposal, and so because Wendy does a lot of public art consulting, they're really good at like things, like I said, like looking at I budgets see. for you, and you know, helping to sort of just look over a proposal and say, oh, this, you know, this is clear, this isn't clear, or make sure that you're, you know, yeah, make sure you're asking for enough for yourself or whatever. So they do get involved to some extent. I mean, I know that like they will for instance do project management if you have too many projects but you're pay, you know then you can pay a fee you know like you can pay them to do project management for instance oh, okay. so that's sort of accessible if you're if you were working on something that's like a huge budget I mean I've been a finalist for a bunch of these projects but I never get that I've never actually gotten one yet so I don't know like what I think that if you're in a situation where I mean I know we've talked about you know this idea of like 
where they'll get involved. So, you know, they do like a little bit of involvement unless you want, really want to like hire them to project manage, which I can imagine mm -hmm. if you had a bunch of different projects that going on at the same time would be a really good thing. And that is it for part one of our conversation with Ranu. Stay tuned next week to hear part two. And just a quick reminder that right now, Nicole and I are in the process of looking for artists for season three, Beyond the Studio East Coast edition. So if you are following us on social media, you will see a little link in our bio that links to a survey where you can submit an artist that you want to hear their story, or if you want to submit yourself, that's totally cool too. So go submit. You have until the end of June 2019 to submit your artist for season three. And don't forget to sign up for our email list because you'll get that link in there too. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Uh -huh.